This podcast is brought to you by Blackbee Ministries International. To find out more, visit blackbee.org. Welcome to the Richard Blackaby Leadership Podcast, helping take your leadership to the next level. My name is Sam, and I'm your host. And today on the podcast, we have a wonderful conversation with Cheryl Batchelder. She is the former CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen Incorporated, a multi-billion dollar chain of more than 2,600 restaurants around the world. She has been profiled in the Wall Street Journal, featured in Mad Money, and received top industry awards. She had prior leadership positions at Yum Brands, Domino's Pizza, RJR Nabisco, The Gillette Company, and Procter & Gamble. Today, Cheryl serves on boards, mentors CEOs, and invests in philanthropy. Her book, Dare to Serve, is available wherever you get your books, and we'll leave links to that in the show notes. And now, Richard's conversation with Cheryl Batchelder. Well, I've often said that uh, I have a great job that I get to do. I, I love what I do. I look forward to it. It's uh, my, my daughter often teases me and says, uh, Dad, you're never going to retire because uh, you just keep on doing what you're doing now anyway. And uh, that's probably true. Uh, and some of the things that make it so exciting to do my job, one is I just I get to make the world better because of what God lets me do. Um, but I also get to just meet amazing people. Uh, that's just one of the real highlights for me. Uh, and today, I have a special guest who's one of those amazing people, Cheryl Batchelder. Uh, most of you listening, I'm sure you know who she is. You've heard about her. You've probably eaten a product that she's been responsible for producing. Uh, and uh, she is, whenever I'm around uh, smart people, I just, I, I try to listen. But people like Cheryl, I, I, when she starts talking, I grab a notepad and lean in because I don't want to miss what she has to say. Cheryl's done all kinds of things. I could, uh, I could take the whole uh, time just mentioning her successes. She's worked for Procter & Gamble, for Gillette, for Nabisco. Uh, she's uh, been in charge of marketing for Domino's Pizza. She's been president of KFC. She was, uh, I think, perhaps most famously CEO of Popeye's for about a decade uh, and did a major turnaround with that. Um, and, and just, just reading her bio makes me wonder when is lunch. I'm getting hungry just <laughs> watching that. But, uh, she serves on a number of boards, including, uh, Chick-fil-A's board now. Uh, and, uh, just as, just a wealth, a wealth of experience. And so it is my delight to have Cheryl, uh, with us on this podcast this morning. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And I've uh, had the privilege of working with her in a, in a project and just watching her in action, and it's a lot of fun. She is just brimming with wisdom. But Cheryl, tell us a little bit about yourself, because a lot of our listeners, by the time we know people like you, you're already famous and successful. But uh, I think one of the things I enjoy most about uh, leadership is just knowing the, the backstory that uh, these you don't you don't get born famous and successful. <laughs> it's a, it's always a journey. And so tell us some of your, your journey, especially how, how would you ever become uh, a, a leader in the business community like you've become? Where, where, how did that get started for you? Well, it would have to start with my family. Hmm. Uh, family is central to my story. Um, and it's extended family and generations of family. You know, hmm. um, I uh, was raised up by uh, terrific parents. I'm the oldest of four children, so there is a birth order thing probably, Mm. but um, my parents were very dedicated to their children. 
growing up in a family of faith, uh, a family of support and celebration. You know, we knew all our aunts and our uncles. I was lucky to know all four of my grandparents. Hmm. Um, our cousins were good friends. You know, family was really central to how we uh, spent our summer vacations and our holidays. Um, education was central to our family. Um, my parents thought you ought to read and you ought to learn and you ought to learn to articulate your uh, beliefs and your ideas and uh, talk about them persuasively. We were a very loud family. All, <laughs> I think probably 100% extroverts, at least our, <laughs> our husbands would say that. Um, and so, um, you know, there's nothing like an, uh, a sound upbringing for the foundation of leadership. I know that God gave me great grace by providing that because we were encouraged and affirmed our entire life. Hmm. We were, uh, you know, we knew that God created us. We knew that he intended good. Uh, we knew he had a calling on our lives. And, and I don't know, you know, what would replace that? Uh, I can't think of anything more powerful than that foundation. And it came, um, probably my two biggest family mentors were uh, my two grandmothers. Um, and you mentioned my leadership journey. My two grandmothers, one born in the late 1800s and the other in 1909, um, were both working mothers. Wow. And so to, I, I grew up, you know, one was a dairy farmer. That's a working mother, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, up at the crack of dawns uh, and uh, making pies and, and running the family and also plowing the fields and milking the cows. You know, I learned so much from her. Hmm. Her work ethic, her her faith foundation. She sang hymns all day long, hmm. um, and she answered every question I ever asked her candidly and with genuine desire for me to understand where the foundations uh, were in her life and her thinking. And she had an eighth grade education, hmm. uh, but she, tremendous impact on my life. And hmm. uh, to this day, is often the strong, courageous leader I think of, uh, when I need inspiration. Wow. That's, that's a little bit yeah. about family, but an incredibly important part hmm. of the story. Now, Cheryl, you, now I know I learned something very interesting about you a few months ago. You, when you went to college, you were not a business major starting out. You tell us about when, when you first went to get your bachelor's degree, what were you majoring in? Yes. There's probably two things that surprise people the most about <laughs> my history. Um, one of them is when people ask me my first job and I tell them that I taught knitting lessons, <laughs> the, knitting at the age of 12, I taught you how to make mittens and hats at a little yarn store in Danbury, Connecticut. And I got paid in yarn. So I made a lot of sweaters. <laughs> um, and most people don't think of me as a knitter. <laughs> um, and the second one that you raise is my college uh, major. I auditioned uh, to the Indiana University School of Music, which is uh, probably the best uh, state school, music school in the United States, hmm. uh, and surpassed probably only by um, uh, the one in New York, uh, whose name is escaping me. But uh, incredible music school. And I basically, it was a whim. My music teacher said, you should audition to that music school. Piano was my instrument. 
I worked like a dog to perfect the piece. I taped it on one of those old reel to reel Mm. (laughs) tapes that are now dead, (laughs) um, sent it in and got accepted. Mm. And so I went there to study, uh, performing arts and piano with the goal of being a music teacher. I never wanted to be, you know, Van Cliburn on the stage. That was never my goal. And I didn't want to play piano in bars, but <laughs> I really wanted to teach and uh, particularly vocal students, choruses, madrigal singers, those kind of things, because I had a great uh, music teacher my mm. whole high school years. And so that was the goal. I got there and I realized that being in a closet eight days practicing was really lonely. <laughs> For an extrovert. Um, <laughs> Yes, I w- it was wrong. You know, if I'd been in a choir, I might have graduated a music major because they only practiced about an hour a day because their vocal cords had to be uh, cared for. But a pianist could pound for eight straight hours and they were expected to. I hated it. I hated everything about it. Huh. And after my jury, which is when you perform for the faculty to determine if you're suitable to continue, uh, I didn't find that a great experience. And mm. I, I told my parents I was going to drop out of college. Mm. That was not popular. <laughs> um, and they said, uh, you can change your major, but you're going back to college. So mm. I went back to business school primarily because my father was a successful business person in international business. And I said, well, that's interesting. I'll try that. Wow. You know, that's just so fascinating to me. Like someone who's obviously so good at what you do in business. And yet that wasn't your first choice. It was, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's just such an, an encouragement to folks that, and you, and you've talked, uh, I know in some of your talks, you'll talk about early failures or disappointments that it's almost like it's good to get some of those taken care of early because they, they help you steer you where you need to be going. And, uh, maybe, dispel mistaken ideas of what is really important or what you'd be good at. And uh, so whenever I think of you, who obviously was meant to be a leader in business, uh, to think that you didn't just know that from the outset, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, is really interesting to me. And uh, what could seem like a disappointment uh, actually sets you on a trajectory that led to all kinds of success. Um, Well, and I think that's a really important point for uh, your listeners, particularly those younger coming up the leadership ranks is um, you don't really know what's ahead, right? God has a plan and we just, we don't know it all. Uh, And so to trust that the trials and tribulations are for your good, um, because that, you know, I have a long lifetime now. I can, I can tell you it's true. I can testify to that because every disappointment, trial, bummer experience, um, if you chose to learn from it and look for God's insight uh, from the experience, it was a gift. Hmm. It was an incredible gift. My music experiences uh, actually formulated my view of leadership. I'm basically in business, a choral director making sense out of the sections of the orchestra and helping them play well together. Wow. wow. And I've never lost that imagery, right? It, it was very material to shaping uh, my leadership views, but I couldn't have planned that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it, the irony uh, of how God weaves all that together, I, you know, I know even now you're actually mentoring 
symphony directors and, th- <laughs> and uh, yes. it's like wow just uh that uh you know some of those teachers back in the day if they only knew uh all the influence you're having on music today but uh well well tell us a little bit about you know you're very successful very uh very smart uh but you're you're a female too and corporate america is certainly changing it's not as male dominated as it used to be but but certainly when you were entering and so much of your success you uh, you know the truth is you had to overcome some things that if perhaps if you were a man you wouldn't have had to and uh mm-hmm. tell tell us just some of the extra challenges perhaps you faced uh because there's a lot of men listening that uh to this podcast that need to to know uh sometimes what women have to face even even today we we think of ourselves as pretty liberated and and uh you know egalitarian but um what what what's what were some things that you experienced in your your journey well for context um because it it was very new i was almost always the first woman in the room Hmm. Um, that's been true my whole career you know stage of life thing i was always the first woman in the boardroom too when i got to that stage first woman ceo you know in a company um so you know you could say wow that's really cool it really isn't all that cool to be the first (laughs) and the reason is um there's several reasons for women um you know people on the surface are excited for you to be the first but when you step into that role two things are problematic you're expected to represent all women kind right we have a woman now right (laughs) Well, that's a really inaccurate thinking. I, I'm just one woman, right? With one worldview, one personality, one approach. I, I am not all of female humanity. And so it's too big of a burden to be the only one. When, when someone now asks me to be on their board, I say, how many women are already on your board? Because I don't want to be the first anymore. I want to be one of three or four women on your board. And then you'll you'll have a better representation of the diverse kinds of women, just hmm. like men, right? Men aren't clones. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it, that part of being a woman is just uh, not all that helpful. It works much better. In fact, the research says the performance of a team is optimized. The financial performance of a team is optimized when it's 50-50. And hmm. I just think that's because God designed it that way. We're basically half and half in the world and therefore we complement each other well when we have the full complement. The second thing I would tell you is um, there was always a suspicion about how you got that job because, Mm. you know, were you affirmative action, you know, Mm. Um, were you an experiment, you know, and I think I was a couple of times. I didn't love that job either, but I think for some companies they said it's time to have a woman that's the wrong reason hmm. to put a woman in the job. It's not fair to her. Hmm. Uh, she should be given the job just like a man is for her skills and competencies and the opportunity to perform. Um, and uh, that isn't still isn't always true in the higher ranks of the company. So the most helpful thing I can offer, um, I think, to men trying to think this through is we need to know women, know their strengths, and respect their strengths. 
we are designed differently. I refuse to say that I have to be a man to be effective. I, I think that would go against God's design. Hmm. Um, I need to be fully who he designed me to, to be. Um, and, you know, when you ask me, what have you encountered? I've encountered disrespect most often. Yeah. And what does disrespect look like? Underestimate me? Uh, assume that I don't know how to do things, uh, hmm. assume that I'm soft or weak or nurturing, all the w words we use for women. By the way, I'm pretty happy to be a woman and I'm pretty grateful for my nurturing skills, you know, but don't pigeonhole me as ineffective or less respected because of my design. And so hmm. The single most important thing you can do as, as a man, if you want to help bring women forward, is to actually know them. You know, I love the question, and I think this is a question we can ask all people in minority, right? Is, um, I would love to know more about you. Hmm. I would love to know what strengths you bring to the party. I would like to know, is there anything we do here in this business situation that makes it harder for you to contribute? Hmm. Um, is there anything we unknowingly do that disrespects you or dishonors you? Hmm. Uh, because it's out of that conversation, you would get a concrete set of things you could act on and your knowledge would be increased and you would become, I think, more effective of at bringing the best out of women. That happened to me at an important career juncture. And the person who asked me all those questions was an African-American. Really? Huh. And he said, I think I need to know you better. Huh. And I, I'll tell you, it, it was the most meaningful mentor at that point in time I had ever met. Wow. Well, you know, I know, and again, like as a man, I, I can just speak for myself, but like, I don't want to, I don't want to come across as a bore or chauvinist. And, but when you're trying to relate to a woman, you, uh, if you've been around a lot of men, most of your life, uh, you, you, you can almost get paranoid to say, no, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And so, you know, we were talking off air, just even with women, appearance always comes up. You know, if you're, even if I just want to compliment someone I, I'm not going to say to a man probably hey you really look good today but I, I see a woman and I'll and immediately appearance becomes important and and yet uh, you know you can stop and think well wait a minute here did that how does that woman take that is that offensive is that crossing the line like any any other just advice for men relating to women I think that was wonderful just trying to understand them uh, like you said anyone who's different than you, I uh, probably just need to learn to ask good questions, but are there some things where even like well-intentioned men will just, without thinking, will just do some pretty ignorant things? <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't really understand all the focus on female appearance. It's it's really deeply embedded in our, in our culture and the way we talk. So I, I don't know how to root that out. I mean, I, I appreciate a compliment like any human appreciates a compliment. Uh, but to be honest, in business, I'd rather you say, you know, you did a great job in that interview today than mm -hmm. to say, man, you look terrific. I, I kind of don't know what to do with that latter comment. <laughs> you know, did I look terrible yesterday? And it's a big change. I, um, yeah. And and it can just kind of it, it kind of takes the conversation off 
off track too. I mean, why are we talking about that? Um, I've been fascinated in the current, you know, where we're watching currently all our te television anchors speaking from their homes and everybody goes, Ooh, that woman needs a makeup artist. Huh, they yeah. say it every day. Huh. And I laugh too, but why do we do that? We yeah. don't say that about the men who don't have any powder on their nose. I, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of deep in our culture. So I think just to be aware that, you know, could I say something affirming about something more important than that? Right. Yeah. Because we don't, uh, you know, we don't comment. We also don't say negative things about men. Like, you know, he's looking kind of fat. I, <laughs> yeah. I've heard people say that about women in leadership. I've heard pe women's, um, I've heard people say about women, you know, she really needs to get her weight down to get promoted because hmm. she doesn't look polished enough. Hmm. She looks kind of frumpy is the word they always use. She looks hmm. kind of frumpy. Um, I've never heard anyone say that about a man. He looks kind of frumpy. Yeah. Um, but I've met a lot of fat men. So, <laughs> yeah. so you know, we just need to, I think your instinct, Richard, is just think before you speak. You know, is that really an important thing to comment on? Or is there something more truly affirming that I could say? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think appearance sometimes it's just the easy surface thing. Like you don't yeah. have to stop and actually think and observe uh, and, and see things of significance. You just say, oh, I like that blouse. Like, well, that's just such a shallow, easy, low hanging fruit sort of comment yeah. without having to actually observe. And uh, but I, I appreciate that. And I, you know, I, I know there's a lot of well-meaning people that just need to encouragement to think. <laughs> now, you've written at least one book that I know of, Dare to Serve how to drive superior results while serving others. And that seems to be to encapsulate some of your leadership philosophy. I know certainly at Popeye's, you, you, you transformed a culture uh, at that chain of restaurants uh, and you did it by servant leadership. Is that, uh, you know, in all the, I mean, you served in so many different roles and so many different companies, but is that kind of your leadership takeaway? Like if you were to, if you just to summarize, you know, what, what's your approach to leadership? Uh, what, how, what would you say is to you just the key to leading successfully today? Well, in two words, my leadership approach is that serving performs. Hmm. Um, and this was not the leadership approach of my generation. Yeah. Uh, it came out of years of observing cultural leaders and deciding what the most effective approach was. So I, I not only had a lot of career experience, but I also did a lot of reading on leadership and what creates the uh, environment where people perform their best. Hmm. And interestingly, there's a lot of books written by academics and consultants that say servant leadership yields superior performance to leaders who are kind of self-obsessed um, hmm. leaders. But they've been writing those for 40 years. People have been writing those treatises, doing that research, selling, you know, having bestseller books like Good to Great by Jim Collins, you know, incredible book. But I came to understand people were buying the books, but not acting on the principles. Hmm. And there, when I came up there, there servant leaders were unheard of unless you were running a charity huh. uh, or a church. 
You know, then you talked about servant leadership, but servant leadership was not taken seriously. And so I always think it's important to start with definitions. Mm -hmm. Servant leadership is a premise that simply says, think of others more often than yourself. That's it. It's not be a doormat. It's not give a lot of hugs. It has nothing to do with campfires and kumbaya. <laughs> it, it is about considering the impact of your leadership on others, period. And do you create an environment that brings out their best, which therefore yields the best performance of the company? I, I you know, um, I found that the, the idea of servant uh, leadership, the, the, that word servant really trips a lot of people up because they, they think, well, are we, does that mean my employees are running the shop? Do, am I just here to just, you know, take orders from the shop floor and do what they want? Or, you know, how do you serve people and yet still be the leader, still be in charge? Well, that's a, a good point. I talk about two uh, traits of leadership in my book and in every time I have the opportunity because I think they're, they're both sides of the coin. Uh, the first is courage and the second is humility. Humility is kind of obviously associated with serving others and thinking of them as more significant than yourselves. But the leader also has to bring forth the courage to call out a daring destination for the team or the organization. You have to take them somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. I often use the analogy of extreme mountaineering uh, as a sport, right? If, if you were going to climb Mount Everest, I think it's easy to understand that's a daring destination. But what does it take to be successful? You go in teams, and that team had better be prepared, physically prepared, mentally prepared, maybe even spiritually prepared, yeah. right, for the challenges that they're going to encounter. So a great leader that gets their team to the top of Mount Everest is a deeply caring, attentive, go-on-the-journey-with-them leader. Because if he or she is not that kind of leader, they will fail. They may even die in those conditions. And I think it's a really provocative way to think about our uh, responsibility as leaders. Because, yes, to your point, we have to have a strategy and a vision, right? They have to know where we're going. I believe it should be courageous. Uh, most people don't want to do mediocre boring, incremental things. They want to do something big, something yeah. important, something game-changing, right? So that is the leader's job to call out where are we going and why is that so important mm. and to show a roadmap and mm. then marry it with this spirit of attentiveness to the mm. people who are going to go with you on that journey. Well, I think just even your record at Popeye's, for instance, I think the I think the the shares were something like fifteen dollars a share when you took over, and they're like seventy nine dollars uh, mm -hmm. uh, a decade or so later under your leadership. It's I mean it, it's just clear that leading that way brings results, brings profits, and uh, it, it's it's not like you're giving away the farm by having being a servant leader. It actually adds value and uh, adds to the bottom line. Well, and that, to be honest, I wanted my, you know, final appearance as a CEO. That's what I wanted the case study to be about. I wanted to prove out that these mm. principles could be put to work in a publicly traded company um, and generate the kind of results that would wow. Um, you know, we, were, we had the best gains in market share. We beat our competition soundly during those years, and we delivered to our shareholders. But how did we do that? 
the central theme of our leadership is that we would serve our franchise owners well, and that would serve the shareholder well. And mm -hmm. so every time a shareholder said to me, how are you going to get your share price up? I said, I'm going to do that by making our franchise owners wildly successful in sales growth, new openings, profitability. And if mm -hmm. I do that, you'll be happy with the outcomes. And it literally changed the way they followed our stock. They would call franchise owners and say, is she serving you well? Is that team delivering results for you? And mm. if the franchise owners said yes, they were optimistic about our stock. And mm. I maintained the same top 10 shareholders for almost the entire 10 years because mm. they believed in the approach. I'll never forget, you know, stock analysts are typically 27, 28 years old, you know, kind of spreadsheet jockeys out of college. And, um, and I remember one of them say, can you explain this servant leadership thing? And so I did in a public forum at an investor conference. And he looks back at me and he goes, well, okay, I just really like the results. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, that's kind of my point. <laughs> well, uh Gerald, one maybe one last uh, question before I just uh, I know I knew time would race by on this uh, time, but uh, we've we've been in one of the uh, one of the biggest crises that uh, we've faced in American history. Uh, no textbook that explained what do you do when a COVID nineteen hits uh, when you suddenly have to furlough a third or more of your staff or uh, and and. And would there be any additional advice you'd have from all the experience in a time of crisis? Do you lead differently? What like I know there's different seasons in leadership, different stages, perhaps in company mm -hmm. uh, growth and performance. But but when a crisis hits, does the leader put on a different hat or lead with a different foot? Or what do you what what would your advice be to leaders right now trying to lead well with a crisis they've never had to encounter before? Well, you know, my career ended up being about transforming companies that were usually in crisis. I I was called a turnaround person, right? Go into messes and fix them, and that's a form of a crisis, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you usually don't have a lot of time to fix it because it's been broken for a long time. And so um, I believe the principles of leadership don't change, um, except perhaps in this fashion. Um, I think people still need a very clear vision you're asking them to do. They need candid, frequent communications. Maybe the frequency steeps, uh, steps up. Uh, and they still need to really know you care about them. And I've watched that in the leaders I've come alongside during these crises. Um, they immediately look to what's best for the people and the enterprise. Because as you know, a lot of companies have had to furlough or fire many, many people. Yeah. But if they don't hold the enterprise together post the crisis, they have not served the people well. Yeah. Um, so they have to act decisively. Uh, they have to make very difficult decisions that on the surface may look uncaring to human beings, but for the sake of the enterprise and the people, not themselves. I've been really proud of the leaders I've watched during this time. Hmm. Um, they immediately took pay cuts to take burden off the payroll. They just they selflessly said, nope, 
all executives take a 50% pay cut. Didn't even think about it overnight. Hmm. Um, they said, we do have to lay off broadly and fast so that six weeks from now, we're not out of cash and close. Hmm. Um, another decisive action. And now they're at the juncture of saying, okay, how do we thoughtfully build back the organization in a sustainable way? Because it's a whole new world now. Hmm. We can't operate the same way as in the past. But the servant leader aspects I most admire in crisis are, again, listening carefully to the people. Hmm. And, you know, the people always know more than you do about the situation. Uh, giving them clarity of expectations and direction is your job as a leader. Candid feedback is your job. Um, and uh, at every opportunity, let them know that you're with them. Um, most leaders right now are talking on video to their teams at least weekly uh, to make sure they're being transparent and quick and clear and honest uh, with people. And that's what people want from you during a crisis. They do, um, during a crisis, the people uh, lose confidence in themselves, hmm. right? Because they're not sure they know what to do. So they do lean harder on their leaders. They do expect more of you hmm. during these kind of times. And they expect that you do know what to do, whether you do or not. <laughs> They do. And, you know, Richard, that probably, you know, to me brings to the faith component of leadership, because um, I don't know a leader in America that has ever seen this situation before. Um, and so if we're honest with ourselves of le as leaders, uh, we are not the know-it-alls. Mm -hmm. um, and my faith allows me to say in this circumstance, I am not God. It is not about me. And as you and your father always say so brilliantly, my job is to wake up in the morning, ask God what he's doing, and join him in that process, because I do not know the way forward. And, you know, you say that in a public company environment, they probably think you're uh, <laughs> suffering from mental illness, you know, uh, because it's, it, it appears to lack confidence, but my confidence is firmly in God's plan. And that allows me to call out the decisions with clarity, knowing that he will redeem them, right? Any given decision I make might be wrong. Hmm. Uh, but I do trust that if you're listening uh, to God and allowing him to steward your thinking, uh, that he'll redeem even the things I don't get quite right. Well, well thank you, Cheryl. It's, uh, I really appreciate you just taking time to this morning to come on with us and just share some of your wisdom from all your years of experience and success. And we'll have in the show notes, uh, we'll list, uh, her book and, uh, some of her, uh, bio information. And, uh, she's, she's given all kinds of talks and you can check her out on, on YouTube and places and get all kinds of her presentations. And they're all always helpful, always insightful. And so I'm glad that, uh, that the listeners this morning, you just had a chance to hear from uh, her a little bit. And uh, Cheryl, just pray that God continues to use you. You're still just active in so many different ways, and uh, you continue just to impact so many people. And uh, just our privilege to have you on with us this morning. Well, thank you, Richard. It's always a privilege to work with you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If this is something you enjoyed, it really makes a difference if you leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We always love hearing from our listeners. So email us at podcast at blackme.org.